Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. This is Liza Berger, editor of McKnight's Home Care. I spoke recently with Ido Banak, president and CEO of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization. He talked to me about the proposed 2.7% payment increase for fiscal year 2023 for hospices. While a bump, it's a modest one, he said. 2.7% is not a high percentage, but the rate of inflation is, is obviously much higher than that, right? So what we're dealing with is... Uh, payment that's based on pre-COVID, pre-inflation numbers, and I won't go into the details because they'll bore your listeners, but basically we're dealing with 2019 numbers that for hospitals that reflect what it is that hospices get paid in this year, actually next year, and uh, they haven't kept up. They haven't accounted for the toll of COVID. They haven't accounted for inflation. And by the way, there is a sequester that will take away all but 0.7 of the 2.7% increase. So we're really dealing with, you know, unlike hospitals and nursing homes and some other settings, the payment that hospices get is a per diem rate. That's all they get. Everything that they do from paying their people to paying for, uh, for gas comes out of that, uh, that number. And it's just not enough to keep up with rising costs. How is the industry coping with the issue of staffing shortages, which has been a major issue in other segments of post-acute care? The good thing about the hospice uh, interdisciplinary team is most people who work for hospices um, and community-based palliative care uh, programs are called to it. This is a calling and, and are very dedicated to it. And uh, we're, we're so appreciative of the work that our nurses and social workers and aides and therapists and everyone else uh, that they do every day. But the reality is that we talked about inflation and money, and I think that folks are getting lured away by entities like hospitals that are able to pay more, higher bonuses, recruitment bonuses, retention bonuses, et cetera. So it's been a struggle, but I, I really am proud of the way that our members have kept going, have supported their their staff, have, have focused on on their morale, on, on their uh, behavioral health, on the needs that they have and their communities have. And uh, although it's been a struggle, they continue to move forward. And my job is to make sure that they continue to receive the support that they need to focus on their programs. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, what you mentioned in um, your last answer, community palliative care. Right. Um, at what stage, there's been a lot of talk about offering that Medicare currently doesn't. At what stage is that? You know, I, I think we're, we're at the stage right now where the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, CMMI, has taken in our feedback and the feedback of a lot of our colleagues. And, and I do expect that we will see either as part of a model or even not, you know, as on, on its own, some version of serious illness or community-based palliative care. I'm still very bullish on, on that. It's taken a lot uh, of work. I think that what we've been through as a country over the last two years has sort of illustrated why we need it. We have a lot of people who were seriously ill, but were not uh, didn't have a prognosis of less than six months to live, although many had uh, less than six days to live. And were in the community, had significant uh, needs, some psychosocial, some uh, medical, some non-medical. And we've actually kind of the silver lining in a sense is don't know what we're talking about. Let us show you what we've been talking about. And that was really a, a dialogue that we started with the Innovation Center in March of 2020. So I'm bullish. We're going to see some version of it. We're just not there yet. 
What exactly are, would be the details of, of a benefit like that? Can you explain okay. it? Yeah, I think the best way to explain it is by explaining how we take, in a sense, the status quo and meld it together with this end-of-life benefit that we've got called hospice. And hospice provides an interdisciplinary team that wraps around the individual and their needs and provides a payment to that team to meet those needs. It's only available for folks who have a terminal diagnosis. It doesn't allow for concurrent care, curative and palliative at the same time. And folks have to have a prognosis of less than six months to live. If you stretch that out and you stretch that benefit out and you say, well, why do people have to give up curative care in order to get palliative care? Why do people need to have less than six months to live? Then you begin to see the elements of what much earlier could be a community-based palliative care benefit. People at the early stages of their COPD or their dementia diagnosis who don't have less than six months to live, who don't want to give up curative care, whatever it is, but do have the need for a bunch of folks to wrap around them and kind of fill in all the gaps of our healthcare system. Uh, that's what we mean when we talk about community-based palliative care. Mm-hmm. What did COVID uh, do to your industry, your field? In what ways did it shape and change it? Well, I think it really, uh, during the early stages of it, it was really difficult to get the protective equipment that folks needed to do their job pre any sort of medicine or anything else. Folks still had to be out there and they had to provide care to folks who were seriously ill. And it really challenged the hospice and community. And there is community-based palliative care, despite the lack of payment, that sector, luckily, Uh, We were able to work with Congress and the administration to get some support, over a billion dollars worth of support for the hospice sector, which helped considerably. And then as we got vaccines and we were able to more safely go out and provide care, we saw some stabilization in terms of the ability to provide that care. We certainly saw that lengths of stay were getting shorter. People were staying in the institution longer, were discharged to hospice later And so there were things that we saw during COVID. You know, one, I talked about COVID itself is sort of a really good argument for community-based palliative care. But we also saw with COVID some of the barriers to getting hospice care at all. We saw that the lack of concurrent care, having to give up curative care in order to get palliative care is a problem, a problem that it turns out there was a demonstration called the Medicare Care Choices Model that says, actually, if you get access to curative and palliative care at the same time in hospice, you don't spend more money and people end up getting the right care at the right time. So while we've been focusing on pre-hospice palliative care, we've also been looking at the benefit itself and the way that it can be improved. I would also add equity, you know, which is something that the whole country has had a reckoning with. Hospice traditionally has been a white upper middle class or middle class and up benefit. And we've gotten better over the last 20 years, but not uh, not good enough. And so it's really intensified our efforts to make sure that one of the hallmarks of of a quality program is the extent to which that program is accessible. And we've redoubled our efforts to work on equity efforts across the country to make sure that everyone who requires this level of care receives it. Hospice seems to be under scrutiny or will be under scrutiny from regulators, as you mentioned, because of lengths of stay and and high discharge rates. Did COVID play into this? And how much of a concern is this to you? I'm talking about not only the 
the scrutiny, but also just the fact yeah. that lengths of stay and high in there are longer and discharge rates are higher. Yeah. So I, I think that COVID obviously took a situation. Uh, we already had an Office of Inspector General report that came out pre-COVID. So it kind of took a situation and it both shone a light on it and actually was instructive in, in some of the improvements that we need to make. I think that the changes, though, are instructive in the sense that, you know, oftentimes the regulators and the OIG will kind of point out to the manifestation of a problem instead of actually focusing on the problem itself. And so, and and if you think about it, long lengths of stay and live discharges are a flip of the same problem. The problem isn't that people are getting hospice for too long, or the problem isn't that people are getting hospice for too short a time. The problem is the model itself. And dementia is the perfect example. Someone has dementia and they get hospice for three years the hospice is called out for being fraudulent because they've given a three-year benefit to someone who, by the way, legitimately needed that benefit. And by the way, also had less than six months to live at any given time. It's hard to prognosticate. But if the hospice would have instead discharged the patient alive because they didn't want to get in trouble, right? That's the... Same manifestation of the same problem. So what is a hospice to do? Is a hospice to discharge patients alive or keep them for a really long time? Mm -hmm. The problem isn't in that case, the hospice. The problem is the benefit, which is why we've been focusing on, especially with dementia, needed updates to the benefit itself. You're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You said it. (laughs) How are your members preparing for this or potential uh, increased scrutiny and what else is on the minds of your members these days? Well, I, you know, I would say the members, you know, in terms of scrutiny, uh, what we want our members to do is just to do the best job that they can do at delivering the benefit every day. Um, if you're constantly looking over your shoulder and practicing defensive hospice, then what happens is folks are not going to get admitted to hospice who actually really need it. So um, and and that's, you know, in in terms of equity and and access to the benefit, we want our providers to exercise excellent oversight and scrutiny. But you don't want I mean, and I'm a lawyer. You don't want the lawyers running the the business and determining who should get admitted and who shouldn't get admitted necessarily. You want the compliance folks to be involved, but you have to have a combination of the heart and the head here. So I think that that's been really important that we don't overcorrect here and reduce access to this really important benefit. How are they getting ready? For sure, compliance is is super important. It will continue to be important. And I would also say, you asked about our members. I think our members are by and large, not the folks that I'm truly concerned about. Um, There are a couple thousand hospice providers in California and specifically in LA County that are not our members and are not serious about compliance or quality but are still providing hospice services. And I think that that is a really good place to look for the government first, because I think what we, what we want is you have to be committed to quality. You have to be committed to equity. You have to be con- committed to evolving the benefit. And if you're doing all those things, then sort of you're, you're trending in the right direction. There are many providers out there who are not even trying to do that. And that's mm-hmm. where I'd start in terms of oversight. Um, um, not to say I mean, everybody needs to be overseen. And as a former healthcare and compliance professional, absolutely. But I think that I'd like to see more rigor on who gets to be a provider to begin with. 
So there are some providers that are kind of bringing down the rest of the rest of the field. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. A few bad apples, as they say. Absolutely. I'd like to talk a little bit about M&A mergers and acquisitions, because right. I've, I've talked to some financial folks who said that, you know, my goodness, the valuations for hospice agencies are just sky high. What's going on here? I don't know. I, I think that, you know, mar- markets behave in certain ways. I, I couldn't talk to you about cryptocurrency either and why things are more expensive or less expensive. All I can say is that the market has determined that uh, hospice uh, services and, and the providers who, who provide them uh, are worth a certain amount. To a certain extent, I think it's uh, not necessarily healthy for valuations to be as high as they are. Because of what I just said, if someone's involved in hospice services, this is not a widget. You know, if folks are involved here, they need to be committed to the mission, to the cause, to quality, and not just looking to make a quick buck. They can be a for-profit or a non-profit. They can be publicly traded. They could be a private equity firm. I'm agnostic when it comes to that. But what I'm not agnostic about is the quality of the benefits that are being provided, uh, the quality of the individuals who are providing that care, uh, commitment uh, to to the model. Those are all things that I think have to be paramount. Mm -hmm. And what, in your view, is happening in terms of the industry of who's selling off their, their hospice assets, who's interested in the hospice assets? How do you view it? It's really it's across the board. I think we we see some uh, some community based providers that are actually expanding uh, their footprint because they they realize that they have to be bigger in order to contract with Medicare Advantage plans and and be value based. And we certainly have some folks who are are kind of speculating and trying to get larger and and kind of flipping the asset um, also. But I don't think that there's one reason why. Part of it is demographics. There are more people in the category um, that requires this care. Mm -hmm. I'd like to finish up with uh, the leading age report, which came out this week, just yesterday, on home health and hospice best practices. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it. We've been doing so much of our own uh, stuff and our own reports that, no, I haven't, so you'll have to educate me. All right. Well, it said, among the findings, hospice agencies who admit their patients within four hours of receiving the referral have significantly higher family satisfaction scores than those who take longer. Surprising? No, I think hospices who do a better job of communicating with their patients and families uh, generally have more satisfied patients and families. Mm -hmm. Any other best practices that you'd like to point out that you want to uh, reiterate to the people listening? You know, I think where I've seen hospices be the most successful is true sort of fealty and and understanding of the interdisciplinary model. So not an over-reliance on physicians, a lot of focus on all members of the interdisciplinary team. I think that that's, you know, truly important. I think you also see that communication with patients and families and true grief and bereavement care. And I think that that might be a good kind of place to almost end it. What we've seen from COVID is that it's not over when someone dies uh, for the family. And hospice requires a bereavement benefit that spans uh, a little over a year after the patient dies. Some providers make one call and say, we're done. Some are really serious about providing grief and bereavement care. And I think that that's where the wheat gets separated from from the chaff. Those providers that are really serious about grief and bereavement care, those that really utilize uh, volunteers, 
are ones that are kind of picking up on the secret sauce that is hospice and ones that are they're therefore rising to the top. That's terrific. Well, thank you so much for talking to me today, Ido Banak, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com. Home